folks, uh, we are live on um, we are live on YouTube. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, and uh, we're normally on the radio uh, from 9:30 to 11 a.m. on Saturdays. Uh, on WBNN in Huntsville, 92.5 FM. Uh, we also air a recording of the program on 100.7 FM, WGOL in Russellville. Uh, and we are now, beginning next week, we're going to be on WHIV 102.3 in New Orleans, uh, uh, Louisiana. So very excited about that. And, uh, and yeah, so... Uh, but... We only have so much time on the weekends. We only have an hour and a half. And so we've been trying to do some of these midweek streams to, uh, to talk some more about some, some different issues. And so tonight, we, I want to really dive deep into the legislative session. Uh, the legislature is on recess right now. Uh, and so that feels like a good time to kind of uh, get my head above water, so to speak figure out what has happened so far and what is going to happen uh, after the break ends. Beginning, uh, beginning next week, they'll be back in session. So I brought on uh, with me right now is uh, Katie Glenn and uh, Monica, is it Riley? Dennis, Monica yes. Dennis, I'm sorry. Uh, Monica Dennis is with me, and um, it's Riley. Are, uh, I, I just uh, realized that, I just realized that Monica Dennis, Dennis is, is on with the ACLU. And uh, uh, so they're going to be breaking down all of these bills, what's good, what's not so good, M more, <laughs> more of the latter, unfortunately. And uh, so, uh, so, yeah, uh, Katie, Monica, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Yeah, absolutely. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And you were right the first time it is Monica Riley. I just realized that Monica Denise, which is my middle name, is in my header. <laughs> so that's oh, okay. a bit confusing, but it is Monica Riley. I'm sorry about that, but uh, so Monica Riley, uh, thank you for joining us from the ACLU. Uh, so before we jump into the uh, the individual bills, which I, you know, that's going to be the majority of uh, of the stream tonight. I I wanted to see if y'all had any thoughts on the session in general. Do y'all have anything that uh, you know? How, how are y'all feeling? What what are the themes of the session in general? And just you know. What, what are your kind of 30,000 foot view of what's happening in Montgomery this year? Yeah, I'm uh, glad to kick us off. And then I'm really excited to hear Monica's perspective. This is uh, her first session with the ACLU, certainly not her first uh, rodeo with Alabama politics. But um, so uh, as Jacob said, my name is Katie Glenn. My pronouns are she and her, and I'm a policy associate with the SPLC Action Fund, also a proud member of the SPLC Union. Um, so really excited to be here with the Valley Labor Report tonight. Um, you know, every year of the four-year term, which is called the quadrennium in the Alabama legislature, has sort of a different personality. We're in the third year of the quadrennium. My first year working in the legislature was a third year and it was terrible. <laughs> um, it was 2017 and it was awful. Uh, it was when they passed the Memorial Preservation Act. It was the last time they did redistricting um, and it was really, really bad. And we had all heard from leadership this session in advance of this session that their plan was to stick to the issues that impacted everyday Alabamians. 
um, COVID recovery, ensuring that small businesses had what they needed to thrive and survive, um, making sure that families were taken care of, passing the budgets, and um, you know, just really concentrating on priority issues while the legislature was pretty locked down. Um, in a typical session, I am at the legislature whenever, whenever there are members there, and I've been inside that building one time this year um, because there are pretty strict protocols in place and because, frankly, it's not a very safe place to be right now. Um, and so we naively, I think, believed then that there would be pretty limited issues of focus early on, um, pretty uh, predetermined uh, agenda that we would know in advance what they were going to focus on. And then right out the gate, we started working on not at all things that impact everyday Alabamians, not at all things like Medicaid expansion or ensuring, you know, that there was a, a minimum wage or anything, you know, that looked like equity for regular Alabamians. Instead, we've got a tax on healthcare, um, a tax on working class people, and a tax on, um, you know, our fellow Alabamians. So it's it's been pretty tough. We're at the, at the halfway mark. Alabama legislative session can go for 30 legislative days. Don't They don't have to use all 30 of those, and we've used 16. Um, within 105 calendar days, which will be mid-May. So we can go up to mid-May uh, and we'll see what the second half looks like. Uh, your guess is as good as mine. Once the budgets start moving, which they have at this point, you know that they really mean business. Um, so we'll see. Uh, but curious to know what Monica thinks. Yeah, as Katie mentioned, this is, I've literally just stepped over the 30-day mark um, with ACLU. So this is my first rodeo is, um, you know, being an actual lobbyist in the legislature. And it's been um, a, a bit disappointing to watch. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Um, Alabamians need so much more from our elected officials right now. And we're watching them really scrap um, and introduce legislation that has nothing to, that's not going to benefit or impact um, any of us in a positive way. Um, and so although this is, you know, a wonderful experience with, you know, with a new job, having to start a new job in a pandemic by, you know, within itself is, is pretty hectic, but um, being tossed into, you know, watching our lawmakers, people that, you know, we elect to fight for us and advocate for us, um, really just disregard that to focus on, um, just hindering our progress in this state. Um, and as Katie mentioned, you know, we're, we're at the, you know, we're, the ball has been rolling. We're also at the halfway mark with the session as well. So hopefully things start to shift in a more positive way, but we'll see. Right, right. Well, so let's, uh, let's go ahead and, uh, right. So let's go ahead and let uh, uh, jump into some of the, some of the bills. Um, Katie, you sent me, uh, you sent me a list of, of uh, different bills. I put together uh, some of the ones that I was interested in. And one of the ones that you had sent to me was the, um, uh, I believe you sent it to me, if I'm not mistaken, was House Bill 8, the amending the Alabama Memorial Preservation Act. And you called that out uh, in the, uh, in the beginning when, when you talked about your thoughts on, on the session overall, can you talk to us about what, remind us what the, the bill, what the law did in 2017 and what does House Bill 8 seek to do? Yeah, so the 2017 Memorial Preservation Act, uh, was a bill that took away local control from counties, cities, you know, other local jurisdictions 
and kept them from being able to decide what was best to be done with street names, school names, and monuments, um, and instead put that in the hands of the state and of the attorney general and of a commission that to this point really hasn't um, done a whole lot other than be formed and set forth a few rules. Um, and so not to get too far down into the weeds, but essentially it prevents a local jurisdiction um, from deciding what to do with the various entities outlined in that act, the ones that I just mentioned, and instead says if a um, monument, for example, is under 40 years of age, you can um, apply for this waiver and um, possibly have that monument moved. And if it's over 40 years of age, you just can't do that. You just can't move it, can't get rid of it. And if you do, then the state can um, sue the local jurisdiction for $25,000. Um, you've seen this happen in Birmingham. You've seen it happen. Um, the attorney general is uh, moving for a lawsuit in Huntsville. Uh, you saw it happen in Mobile. Um, and over the course of the last summer, um, our Who's Heritage report um, and tracking system has tracked removals of monuments across the country. And Alabama has had some of the highest rates of monument removals of any state in the entire country, partially because we have many more than any other state. Um, you also saw it right here in Montgomery. I'm very proud. Our school board voted after a group of organizers led by three Black women who are alums of the schools to vote to change the name of three um, high schools in Montgomery that are named after members of the Confederacy. Um, but what House Bill 8 specifically would have done is it would not have repealed the act in, in its entirety. Instead, it would have amended it so that there would have been a procedure by which local jurisdictions could have actually come in front of that committee with a plan to say, We've got this monument in front of our courthouse in Florence, Alabama. Our community wants it gone. We want it gone. Here's what we're going to do with it. Um, specifically, the bill said that we would return it to the Department of Archives and History. Perhaps they could return it to a museum like was done in Mobile. Um, we've got a plan for it. We'd like to move it. It is local property. We are the community. We know what's best. Unfortunately, that bill was voted down in committee and it was really disappointing. Uh, it had bipartisan support. Um, it had support from members of House leadership and it still failed. Um, the sponsor of the bill, Representative Gavan from Birmingham has refiled uh, the version that was up in front of the committee as um, House Bill 512. So hopefully it's got a second life and we'll see what happens with it. But we've seen that there are mass movements across the country that this is, you know, this is what the people want. And it's about time that our legislators figured out how to let local communities do what's best when it comes to local issues. That is really funny that, that we had one of the, I didn't realize that we had some of the highest rates of um, taking down museums, even though, you know, uh, the- Monuments, <laughs> taking down monuments, yeah. <laughs> they really tried to take it down. Yeah, yeah. In fact, here in Montgomery, we had some local activists who really are the ones who started the conversation. They removed a statue of Robert E. Lee from in front of Robert E. Lee High School. Um, they were tired of looking at it. They were folks who had gone to school there, who had looked at it every day, and they were tired of seeing it. 
Um, and there have been people from local activists to um, you know, mayors, to city councilors across the state in um, rural and urban communities who have moved to remove these monuments. Um, but unfortunately, lawmakers in Montgomery uh, haven't caught up with the times yet. Hopefully they will this session though. What has the conversation been like among uh, legislators about this? Uh, you know, have, have they been putting forward an argument as to why they're not voting for this or why they're not co-sponsoring it or anything like that? Or, or, you know, what are they saying when they vote no? To answer that question, I will tell you there's another bill sponsored by Representative uh, Mike Holmes from Wetumpka that would increase the penalties. It would make it harder <laughs> to remove monuments, to change the name of your school, or to, in the case of Montgomery, change the name of Jefferson Davis, um, the street named after Jefferson Davis, to Fred Gray. Um, so there's there's quite a division. But again, this is a bill, HB 8, now HB 512, that has bipartisan support. Um, it's not a Democratic or Republican issue. Well, that's good to hear. Hopefully we'll get some movement on that. Monica, I know that this isn't uh, something that the ACLU has really been looking at uh, uh, really strongly, but do you have any thoughts as, you know, as a member of the community or, or uh, as, you know, somebody active in the Democratic Party about this bill or, or um, you know, anything like that? No, absolutely. Um, my community, of course, once the statues or the monument started coming down, um, there were a ton of people that actually wanted to. Um, I live in Troy, Alabama, which is the home of, you know, John Lewis. So, of course, it has relevance. But this legislation now prevents us from being able to move forward because, you know, this is a smaller city. And so the, the city or the commission in this case would not be able to, to really afford that fine. Um, and whereas if we would have had a, a plan that we could present um, to a committee of some sort and say, hey, we don't want to destroy this. We want to just, you know, simply have it move. We don't have that option anymore. So as a community member, somebody that's an, you know, an organizer or an activist in our community as well, we don't, we don't have that option. So it is impactful us negatively. Um, so even though it's not an ACLU position, as somebody that lives in the state of Alabama, but this is also an issue that impacts my community, it's very disappointing to see just how it failed um, with no real, no real reason why <laughs> outside of, you know, we just don't want this legislation. Right, right. Uh, so we've got uh, one more bill before we jump into the criminal justice section. Uh, there are several bills dealing with criminal justice, but there is, uh, um, and uh, Katie, you said that this isn't really in the SPLC wheelhouse, but you had you, you had some thoughts on it, and I think that it's it's something that 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 is worthy of note, so that you know people can flag it in their minds and maybe uh, come back to it later. But there's a bill, uh, I think, co-sponsored or, or put forward by Senator Arthur Orr. Uh, to improve the public record access protocol in Alabama. Uh, give us kind of a broad overview, Katie, of what, you know, what the public record access is in Alabama, uh, you know, what, what the status quo is and what this bill is seeking to do. Yeah, so um, Senator Orr has taken up the mantle left behind by Senator Kim Ward, who's now the director of the Bureau of Pardons and Paroles. Um, Alabama has one of the worst open records laws in the country. Um, it is one of the ways that states like Florida are just leaps and bounds ahead of us. If you submit an open records request to Montgomery County, where I live, and ask them for copies of county commission minutes from 
March 23rd, let's say they met yesterday, and they email you a PDF that is seven pages long, they can tell you that will be $70 because we charge $10 a page. They can just say that just because they want to, even though it's attached to an email, even though a PDF doesn't actually cost any money to produce, um, they can set the cost. They could also just tell you no, they could also just never answer you. And so what this type of legislation has for several years now um, tried to address is several things. Um, the amount of money that is charged for open records requests because it is all over the place, the amount of time that it takes to get a response to an open records request, um, the non-responsiveness in general, or if there is a response, the negative response that you receive from a um, entity that's supposed to respond to open records requests, and then creating some type of individual or organization that oversees disputes and open records requests and ombudsman or something like that. Um, and so Senator Orr, God bless him, has taken up this fight because <laughs> there are so many people invested in this not working out. Um, every time there's a public hearing on this issue, someone comes up and says, you know, Miss Mary, who works at the county, you know, hall, she just doesn't have time to fill 70 bajillion open records requests every week. Well, we're not asking Miss Mary to fill 70 bajillion open <laughs> records requests, but what we are asking is for good government. And good government requires that people have access to the records that are paid for by our tax dollars. Um, it's just really not an option that you like get to pick and choose. So it's, it's difficult. He is trying to come up with a collective solution. When the bill was up in committee a couple of weeks ago, he said, okay, I've got the bill now. I've got the hot potato. Call my assistant if you are interested in this and let's talk about it. Um, so we'll see what comes of it this go round. It's, it's been a tough few years working on it. Um, and we'll see the, the folks at the Broadcasters Association are really leading this charge because obviously reporters need access to open records to do good journalism. And it is a cornerstone of our democracy. Yeah, I, I definitely think that's really important, and hopefully we were able to get that through. Uh, and you know, it's it's funny, it, it's funny, kind of the, the the strange bedfellows, so to speak, that, that you'll get with with some of these issues, because uh, Senator Orr was the person who put through. Um, he wrote SB thirty, the bill that um, that that gave sweeping immunity to employers in cases where they put their employees in danger. Is and, and uh, as a result of COVID, and you know, as a as a union person, I'm very, very, you know, very. He has very varied. I'm he has sorry. very. I was just gonna say he has very varied interests. Senator Ordas. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's. I mean, that's definitely the case because it's. Uh, that's that was a terrible bill. That was a really bad bill. SB thirty. But the open records one, that's a good bill. That that's that's a good bill. So you know, I'll be calling his office and and. Uh, you know, um, uh, saying thank you for this and, and pleased to be continuing to, to do good work like that. So uh, uh, criminal justice. Uh, Monica, let's talk about HB 107, the repeal of the three strikes law. Can you walk us through that bill and, you know, why it's important to repeal the uh, the bill, uh, the, the, the three strikes law? Because, you know, there are, there are folks out there that are going to say, like, 
hey, they had three chances. They had three chances and, and, you know, three strikes and you're out. Those are just the rules. Why should people get to commit more than three crimes in their life? I think, and you know, that's that's going to go into a whole nother, a whole can of worms of like just personal uh, opinions. But one of some of the things that we can focus on, um, and I think something that all of us can collectively agree on is Alabama's uh, prison crisis. <laughs> At this one is, is something that everyone has been concerned with. And, you know, since we got the DOJ report, that's something that's also been in the forefront um, as it relates to uh, overcrowding. Um, HFOA is a major contributor to overcrowding in Alabama's prisons. Um, and it's really just past time for the legislators just to repeal it. Um, it would be definitely a significant uh, step towards easing that current overcrowding crisis, um, reducing the cost of long-term incarceration, um, and also just giving people a chance to be redeemed to re-enter society. Um, so, of course, it was passed in 1977, just to give some background on it, um, and thousands of Alabamians have served like longer prison times than those not sentenced under HFOA, um, and so it just creates this widespread sentencing disparity throughout ADOC. Um, there's currently 504 people that are serving life without parole under HFOA, um, and 1,110 of them are serving life. Um, three out of four of those um, people are Black, and at least 300 people serving life without parole have no homicide or sex crimes on their records, right? So you have people that are serving these life sentences for crimes that honestly are, are not violent crimes. And so it begs the question again, you, you know, you asked at the beginning, because, you know, people will say, hey, why should people get more than one chance? You have to look at those numbers and look at that data and see that you have people serving um, for crimes that could honestly be forgiven. Um, so despite any new sentencing guidelines, it, you know, lawmakers are still, have still left HFOA on the books uh, for prosecutors to use at their discretion. Um, and honestly, it just, the disparities that people experience under HFOA is, is, is really prominent at this point. So even the people who feel like people, you know, they've had all of their chances, we can at least view this from the Alabama overcrowd, overcrowded prisons uh, crisis at this point and say, hey, this relieves some of that. Um, so it's at a standstill currently. Um, it is still in committee. It hasn't made um, a whole lot of progress over the past few weeks prior to the legislature actually going into recess, but that that's also hope because it doesn't mean that you know that it's died. But it's something that we wholeheartedly support. Um, Representative England, who is the sponsor of this bill, has received support from judges as well as district attorneys. Um, and so, even though it is a I would honestly say this is this is also um, bipartisan legislation as well. It, it just goes into the category of, hey, some people just don't like it. Um, but it's definitely something that at this point should be more priority um, and not some of the other legislation that's been currently brought up. Yeah, say that number again. How many people are have been convicted under the Habitual Offender Act that are not guilty of homicide or sex crimes? Um, 500, uh, no, 300, at least 300. That's 300 out of the 500. 300. So there are, um, 504 people 
that are serving life without parole under HF, HFOA, sorry, um, 110, 1,110 are serving life. Um, and 300 of those people serving life without parole have no homicide or sex crimes on their record. That's, yeah. I mean, that's just wild. Like, like, I don't care, you know, how many, like, you know, I don't care if it's your sixth time stealing a loaf of bread, like, you shouldn't have life in prison, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, that's just, it's, it's silly. And there was a really good profile, wasn't it in the Montgomery Advertiser, about somebody who had done almost exactly that. There was, like, just this real petty theft that, that you know, it, it was like two or three dollars or something, and he's been in prison for decades now. You're probably thinking of Mr. Kincaid from Birmingham um, that Alabama Appleseed worked with, um, who got out recently, but who was serving under HFOA. Um, and, and that is, I'm sorry, Mr. Kennard. Um, uh, that is part of this as well, is that there are so many older, mostly men in their 50s, 60s, and 70s who are serving in these prisons. And we need to reckon with as a state and as a society with the fact that what we have sentenced these people to is not life in prison or life without parole in prison, but it is death in prison. And so we have sentenced people to die in Alabama's prisons. And until you have read much about or looked at pictures of or visited one of Alabama's prisons, you really need to think about what that is for like you said, stealing um, a few dollars when they were very young, um, going into an unoccupied shed and taking your lawnmower or, um, you know, having a little bit too much marijuana. Um, it's just a really broken system. Or perhaps I should say it's a system that's working exactly as it's designed and we should redesign it. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's probably unfortunately more accurate. Uh, so the, um, Katie, civil asset forfeiture is a big issue that a lot of folks, that, that I, I feel like a lot of folks across the aisle can, can kind of get behind, like, hey, you know, cops shouldn't steal my stuff for no reason. That's pretty, you know, that seems pretty baseline. Talk to us about the state of civil asset forfeiture in Alabama and what SB10, SB210 wants to do about it. Yes, that is once again our good friend Arthur Orr from North Alabama. Um, it's got it's libertarian streak. Um, civil asset forfeiture, uh, which he has been championing for many years, um, to his credit, uh, is the process by which the state, usually specifically either police officers or sheriffs, can come and take your belongings when you are suspected of a crime and never give them back to you, regardless of whether or not you are convicted of a crime. This was, there's some really boring um, history related to shipping um, that and piracy that I will absolutely not go into because I frankly don't really understand it. But if you wanna yeah. look it up, it started in the 1700s with ships. But what it is purportedly used for now is to address so-called quote, drug kingpins when they, you know, pull someone over who's supposedly trafficking in massive amounts of drugs, they take all the cash that they have to interrupt the drug distribution process. That's not what typically happens in the state of Alabama when civil asset forfeiture occurs. Instead, it's someone who gets pulled over with $50 worth of weed and they take the cash that they have because they just cashed their check for that week or they take their truck 
we have stories of people who are using marijuana either for personal use or for um, medicinal reasons who had their property, either their cash or their automobile seized by um, law enforcement. And the uh, punishment that was doled out by the state was nowhere near the amount of the cost of the vehicle or of the cash that was seized, right? They were, you know, put on probation or served their sentence, but they weren't given a $25,000 fee, which is equal to the cost of their very nice pickup truck that they had worked for and purchased on their own. And because the uh, law enforcement can just take their belongings, um, again, in many cases where someone is never convicted of a crime, there's really no accountability because you have your criminal case happening on the one hand where you're accused of a crime, but in order to get your stuff back, you have to pursue it yourself in civil court. Um, the two cases are not married together. So you have to, as someone who has just been violated by law enforcement, go and hire a lawyer, uh, pursue the case in civil court, which may cost more than the cash that they took to begin with. Um, and then on the other hand, on the government accountability side, it's really hard to track these funds. There's not a line item in the Montgomery city budget that says civil asset forfeiture. Um, there are some places where you can sort of find where like the seizures and forfeitures might exist and you can sort of ferret it out, but it's, it's really difficult to find. And um, I'm happy to share with you, Jacob, a link to our report that we did on this because there are some jurisdictions that somehow end up using civil asset forfeiture as a means by which they prop up their uh, local budgets more than others uh, because they use it to pay for you know, their, their squad cars or um, other needs of the department. Um, it's a, a supplement to their budgets, either the cash or the vehicles or whatever else. Yeah, do you have the numbers on how many of the, like, is there a way to ferret out how many folks are actually, you know, drug dealers like the uh, like the the civil asset forfeiture laws are ostensibly supposed to be for, and how many of these folks are just people that happen to smoke weed, which almost everyone has done uh, in in their life. You know, do you, do you have the numbers on that handy? And 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 how many folks actually end up, you know, uh, uh, not being convicted of the crime for which their stuff was taken? Yeah, I will. We did a report on this in 2018, um, and I will look through it um, in a quarter of the I'm sorry, this was 2015. And so the numbers are a little out of date because it was an investigative report, because once again, you have to do a bunch of open records requests and the, the information is sort of difficult to find. But in a quarter of the 1,110 cases filed in 2015, so 25% of those, let's make it 275 of those rough math. Um, the property owner was not charged with a crime. So in 275 of those 1,110 1, cases, the property owner was never even charged with a crime. Not convicted, not even charged with a crime. Um, and the average amount of cash involved was $1,300. So again, these are not people dealing in massive amounts of cash. These are people who, you know, again, had cashed their weekly check at the bank and were taking it home, you know, who had cash with them because they had sold their sofa, you know, like 
this is not an unreasonable amount of money to have on hand. Right. So what does SB 210 do? Yes, so SB 210, um, among other things, would end civil asset forfeiture in drug cases, and it would move the criminal forfeiture process, I'm sorry, it would move the process into the criminal court. So it would marry those two cases together so that they are not separate in the civil and the criminal case. And I will tell you, yeah, it does sound reasonable. Um, it was introduced on the Senate floor. Um, it was carried over at the call of the chair, which means it can be brought up at a later date. And it's got a lot of opposition, so it's going to need a lot of support. Really? Who from? Um, law enforcement. Okay. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Have there been any, any legislators that have been making the argument against it? Um, you know, there hasn't been a ton of open debate on it yet. It passed out of committee relatively quickly, and then it was only brought up on the floor so that the substitute version, which is sort of the version that's being negotiated, could be introduced. So I think we're going to have to see who um, is most vocally opposed to it. Okay. I think this kind of, <clears throat> this is kind of tangentially related, I feel like, uh, you know, and that is HB 129. And so there's a system in which uh, your driver's license can be suspended for non-driving related offenses. And, uh, you know, in the same manner that civil asset forfeiture can wreak financial havoc on a person's life for uh, no crime in approximately a quarter of the cases, according to those numbers that you gave me, uh, having your driver's license suspended can just destroy you. You can't, you know, most places we don't have good public transit in Alabama because we're so rural. And we uh, and, and folks have to have a car. Folks have to drive to work. If you can't drive to work, I mean, you're really SOL. What is the mechanism by which people's driver's licenses can be revoked uh, for non-driving related offenses? I didn't even, I, I didn't, I didn't even like, I wasn't cognizant of the fact that that could happen. You want me to start on this one, Monica? Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. Cool. Um. So. Alabama is not the only state that does this, but Alabama is swiftly getting left behind as one of the few states still doing this because other states are making this change. You can have your driver's license suspended for non-driving related um, offenses, particularly failure to appear and failure to pay convictions. Um, a failure to appear is like when you get um, uh, one of the more like high level speeding tickets and you have to like show up in court and, um, Washington County, because you're on your way back from the beach and you were going too fast. Um, and I'm sure no one has ever forgotten that random court date from that rural county and accidentally not shown up. You can get your driver's license suspended for that. Um, but for people living in poverty, what that also looks like is not showing up to court because you don't have the money to pay your outstanding fines and fees. And so when you don't have the money to pay your outstanding fines and fees, and you know if you show up, Either you will face a situation where you don't have the money to pay, or there might also be an outstanding warrant for your arrest because of those various fines and fees. You end up with what's called an FTA, a failure to appear. Um, a failure to pay is an FTP. There's sort of two sides of the same coin. Both of those things are reasons that you can have your driver's license suspended. They have absolutely nothing to do with driving. And furthermore, how on earth 
are you supposed to pay for your outstanding court fines and fees if you can't drive to work? Like, what are you supposed to do to get to your job to pay for your court debt if you can't drive to work? It is just yet another way that we keep people in a system where there just seems to be no exit ramp. Um, and so, you know, that is that is the, the human element of it. Um, there are also some old drug laws that allowed people's um, uh, driver's licenses to be suspended for certain drug offenses. Um, you can request an opt-out from the federal government for that. Um, that's uh, sort of uh, from the war on drugs era. It's a war on drugs era law. But further, like this is an economic issue. HVAC technicians need a driver's license. We want HVAC technicians, you know, um, electricians need a driver's license. Governor Ivey wants, what is it, like two and a half million people employed in the next five years or whatever. We're building a bajillion new plants in North Alabama. There's some new car company coming to North Alabama every time I open the newspaper. Those folks are going to need driver's licenses. And if we continue to suspend driver's licenses for unpaid fines and fees and things completely unrelated to driving, those folks aren't going to be able to get jobs. Um, so it just doesn't make any sense. And this bill within the practice of suspending driver's licenses for non-driving related um, offenses, essentially. Who put it forward and, and how's it looking right now? Representative Chris Pringle put it forward. Um, this effort is really being led by our friends at Alabama Appleseed. Um, and I just uh, sent Jacob a link to a great uh a short brief that they put together on it that really talks about the human element and the impact that not having your driver's license has on folks because um, they've done some great deep reporting on this. But Representative Chris Pringle, he's from the Mobile area. He's a construction guy. He knows the importance of driver's license licenses. Um, it is. It was scheduled for a public hearing on the Wednesday that we had such bad weather here in Montgomery. And so that committee hearing got rescheduled. So we're hopeful that it'll be in front of the committee um, when we get back from spring break. Okay, has there been a lot of yeah. opposition to it? So I think there's just some misunderstanding about the impact here um, and about what loss in revenue there might be and about the impact on those various entities that think that they might lose revenue. So we've been doing some work to make sure that everyone feels comfortable with the provisions in the bill. Um, and we've come a long way since last session. So we're getting there. Fantastic. I love yeah. to hear that. Love to hear that we're yeah. getting there. That's, yeah. <laughs> it's always nice to hear progress. Uh, yeah. So Monica, I have talked to um, Deb Wakely at Alabama Arise uh, two, uh, two weeks in a row now about this bill. Uh, this is this is the one that has really uh, caught my eyes that I have been um, that I've been following uh, fairly closely and um, probably one of the reasons that I've been fascinated with it is that you know I, I uh, the the Valley Labor Report comes on WBNN which is a conservative talk radio station and so to be aware of what the audience is listening to I also listen to the station throughout the week and. Um, I take it with a grain of salt. I understand that it, you know, it's a conservative talk station, but uh, what the bill does is radically different than uh, how people are uh, 
talking about it on conservative talk radio, and they're just saying like, oh, people that people that riot, uh, they should have to face the consequences of it, and uh, they don't face the consequences of it now, and so they just, and so, you know, this is just common sense, and uh, it's not at all common sense. HB 445, the anti-riot legislation is what I'm talking about. Um, it was introduced, and it was terrible, absolutely horrible, and the rhetoric on, on the talk sections have not changed at all since the amendments were, were done, and they, you know, they didn't have these caveats when they were supporting it before the amendments, they, you know, it was full-throated endorsement of everything, and, and now there, there have been some amendments, it's a, just a tiny bit less bad, but it's still bad. Monica, uh, talk to us about it from the ACLU's perspective. Uh, Alabama Arise, Deb Wakely, has done an excellent job, I believe, talking to us about right. it. But, uh, Monica, I want to hear what you say. Honestly, it's just a, a knee-jerk reaction to the efforts that are being led by Black organizers and Black community lead leaders across the country um, to confront systemic racism. And I, I think that's the, the, thing, the thing here. Um, there's been a lot of other narratives thrown in. This is about rioting. This is about looting. This is about, and it's not, it's a knee-jerk reaction. Um, and, you know, during the, the open discussion about the bill, that's something that our legislators were really zeroing in on. We're not here to talk about rioting with you guys. We don't want to talk about looting. We want to talk about how this bill impacts activists and you're, you're infringing on our rights of free speech. Um, so it creates a crime, let's just, just to get into the bill for a second, it creates the crime of aggravated riot um, and establishes a mandatory um, incarceration for the crime of riot. Um, under this act, a person that's accused of the crime of riot can be held for up to 24 hours before uh, being released on bail. But it kind of, it also changes the definition um, of a riot as well, because it doesn't require an actual act. Um, and I think that part was amended. Was that um, amended, Katie? What? But in the original bill, um, it didn't require an actual act. Um, and that part was amended um, so that it, there is an act involved. But when you think about things and the person that actually brought the bill, the legislature that actually brought the bill, you know, highlighted the Birmingham incident, right? And that was the reason for it. Um, but it, honestly, even in, in discussions, it's still talking about um, Black Lives Matter and bringing in all the other narratives. And again, it doesn't protect activists. It doesn't protect the organizers. It doesn't do anything to protect the people, but it also doesn't address the core issue um, of, hey, why are people protesting? Why are people uh, you know, out having to, to really engage in this type of activity? So it doesn't address all of that. And it's really just a, just a knee-jerk reaction um, to everything that's been happening across the country. Right, right. Yeah, I mean- It's unfortunate, very unfortunate. It, it's definitely very unfortunate. And I, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really, one of the things that Deb pointed out was that uh, the 48 hours bail, uh, that is something that doesn't even happen with, um, with a lot of violent crimes. There are several violent crimes that, uh, that they don't have this mandatory 48 hour bail period. And uh, you know, I'm almost scared to almost scared to bring that up with with any of the with any of these conservative talk show hosts because then they're going to be like, everybody should have this mandatory 48 hour bail period. And but you know, in this country, like we're supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. And if you are, and if you're just accused of rioting, I mean, there's so much guilt by association in this bill. 
And if, 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 a, if, if a law enforcement officer just accuses you of rioting, whether or not you even broke a window, but if you just broke a window, you can be held for, now it's only 24 hours. I believe they changed that in the bill, but now it's 24 hours. Um, that, you can lose a job like that really easily. And, you know, I don't know. I Call me a bleeding heart, but I don't even believe that breaking a window means you should have your life ruined. I, you know, I don't know. That, that's just me personally. But like Monica, like you said, the uh, you know it, it, there there's no movement on okay, what are these people trying to tell us? Even though there was only one instance of property destruction in the entire state of Alabama, that was that one night in Birmingham. Uh, there was one window broken in Huntsville, but that was by a cop. I mean, you know, so there's there's no interest in like oh, what are these? What are the people that are protesting trying to say? What can we do to alleviate their concerns? It's like no, let's let's make it more difficult for them to protest. It's it's really just really gross. And what's also very unfortunate is this is Alabama, the hearts of the civil rights movement. Um, and in the state of Alabama, the the actions of protesting really changed this entire country. And so you're threatening our free speech. You're threatening our ability to demand change um, simply by you know picking and pulling these small instances, these very rare instances that have happened everywhere and while totally ignoring that across the entire state last summer, we had peaceful protests almost every day. Um, and even now in Birmingham, where you have people that are protesting uh, you know, for the actual union, uh, unions, it's, it's still ignoring the larger picture, ignoring the fact that Alabama has had peaceful protests for an entire summer or throughout this entire pandemic to really highlight this one instance um, and really skew that narrative um, and use that to, to further infringe upon our rights. So it's, it's, it's very unfortunate, um, but I think it's very ironic that this is also in Alabama, which is the heart of all movement. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on the other aspects of the legislation? You know, that's, uh, that's the, the part that, uh, that, that targets the protesters specifically, but there are other, other parts of it that target um, the you know, defund the police narratives or, or, or whatever, um, you know, they're, they're trying to kind of play into the culture war aspects. And, and some of that has been amended. And my understanding is that um, you have to have an even deeper cut into the, uh, into the police budget for them to, before I think it was just 10%, now I believe it's 50% of the police budget. And now they have taken out, they have taken out the culpability of um, politicians who, quote, defund the police were such a thing to happen. Is that right? Yeah, so a lot of that has been amended. Um, and so, but still, just even if you go back to the intent of it, the intent is, you know, obviously targeted towards specific narratives, but a lot of that has been amended already. Uh, Which is still unfortunate. I'll give one of the examples um, that one of our uh, legislators, uh, legislators brought up um, in the discussion about it. And it's like, you know, what you're also doing is taking away the communities um, or local government's ability to actually manage and govern themselves, you know? So maybe if, you know, they want to take a portion of this police budget and allocate it for some, some other, uh, you know, 
if uh, that some other project that maybe needs to be funded more by using that narrative of, oh, you're defunding the police about it is really just, you know, <laughs> buying into that sensationalized narrative that's across the country, something that's not also relevant to Alabama. Um, and, and so, you know, it, it really does impact not just the protesters as well, but could potentially put, uh, impact like local governments and their ability to actually manage their budgets effectively um, or manage it based off of what they need. Absolutely. And be, and, and even be fiscally responsible. You know, this is one of the issues that, that I see with uh, Republican and to some, uh, to some extent Democratic politics is, you know, there, there are all these folks that talk about, oh, we need to bring the, the budgets down, we need, need to bring the deficits down, uh, but that is never applied to law enforcement or the military. If you even suggest that, hey, I don't know, Maybe it's crazy that 60% of our city's budget goes to the police. Maybe it's insane that we spend more on the military than the next 12 countries combined. Uh, you're, you're, you know, you're anathema to, to a lot of folks. And, and that's a really unfortunate uh, statement on you know, the state of our discourse, I think. It is. It is. And unfortunately, you know, it has passed through the House <laughs> and now it's headed through the Senate. Um, so hopefully someone will be able to get that point through <laughs> to, to some folks so, so that it doesn't continue making kind of progress. How's it looking? How, how is it looking from the ACLU's uh, point of view? Are, are, there any, are there any Republican senators that are saying, no, this is bad. I'm pro-free speech. I'm pro-fiscal responsibility. And for those reasons, I can't support HB 445. I haven't heard that explicitly. You have had some that have brought concerns up and they were able to um, really kind of go back and amend some of the things that some people were concerned about, but it still has overwhelming support, unfortunately. So the last uh, the last bill in, in the criminal justice part of it is the uh, SB 203. And Katie, uh, you sent me this. The uh, and, and it's for this is an interesting issue because this is again something that I hadn't talked about, and this is why I wanted to talk to the folks from the SPLC, the ACLU, and Alabama Arise because I've got real kind of tunnel tunnel vision on labor issues and union stuff, and that's fine. Everybody's got their own wheelhouse, but uh, you know, one of the it, it's important to kind of. Uh, peek behind the curtain into other people's wheelhouses and seeing what's going on. So SB 203 institutes, uh, would, would seek to institute due process for K-12 students. Katie, talk to us about why do um, K-12 students need due process? What, what are the things that are happening right now that this bill is seeking to address? Yeah, absolutely. So this is one of Senator Smitherman's bills from Birmingham. Um, and excuse me, I'm about to cough. Let me drink my water. That's fine, no worries. Um, so Alabama is the only state in the Southeast that doesn't provide due process protections for students at all. Um, so we are once again behind the rest of our, our um, sibling states here in the Southeast. Um, sorry, y'all, I didn't talk for like 10 minutes. No, I need to. <laughs> no, <laughs> no worries, no worries. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting because yeah, I, I just I don't know that I hadn't even uh, I hadn't even thought about this as an issue, but uh, yeah, but, but, but I'm yeah. back now. Okay, fantastic. So what it would do is it would ensure that students who are going to face exclusionary discipline—that's long-term suspension or expulsion—would be granted notice, um, a hearing where they can have someone on their side at that hearing 
um, a um, unbiased hearing officer, um, and that, you know, just generally that they are not railroaded through this process. Why does that matter? What does that look like in in real life? SPLC um, was counsel for a student here in Montgomery who was uh, suspended after he was accused of bringing a gun to school. It was a cell phone. I'll tell you right now, it was a cell phone. Um, But he was arrested on campus and taken to jail here in Montgomery. It was the Montgomery Municipal Jail. Um, He's a Black student um, at Robert E. Lee High School. Um, And this was all in the press, so I'm not like telling you anything interesting or secretive. Um, But he, um, God bless him, has been so generous with his story because he doesn't want this to happen to any other students. So while he was in the Montgomery Municipal Jail, the Montgomery School Board met and chose to suspend him. Um, Actually, I think they moved to expel him. And his grandmother was not present at the hearing. He was not present at the hearing. In fact, for quite some time, his grandmother didn't even know where he was. Um, And so after he got out of jail, he was, um, you know, found not guilty by the juvenile court because once again, he had a cell phone at school, um, not a gun. And the school board refused to overturn their decision because he was not president of the hearing. He was not president of the hearing because he was in jail. So, you know, it's those types of situations where students have no basic protections at school and the school, often the school board, the principal or the superintendent has all of the power. Um, And that can have some real adverse and long-term effects for students. We worked with a couple of students in Pike County who were in high school there, um, who were star athletes, star students who were suspended um, and both lost college scholarships because of it. Um, And now are working, um, both living at home and working um, and participated in our webinar talking about the importance of this bill and have been amazing advocates, but they've had real, um, I think they would describe as negative long-term effects because of their experience with the lack of due process when once again, they were suspended because they were skipping class. Again, who amongst us? Um, And they were accused of smoking pot. They had no pot, Um, but the school refused to overturn their suspension. So this bill would provide those basic due process protections that I went over earlier. Um, Again, providing for an unbiased hearing officer, notice about the hearing um, that Um, the student would be able to be present at the hearing with counsel and also would in the practice of exclusionary discipline for truancy and absenteeism. Why should we have lost learning for lost learning? It it makes no sense. It's not an educational best practice and it's not something we should be doing. Um, So it's, it's a really good bill. It has passed Senate committee and we're really hopeful we can get it moving after spring break. Does this have bipartisan uh, support? Yes, it does. It's it has bipartisan support. It's sponsored by a Democrat, but it moved quickly in the Senate last year. And like so many good bills and so many bad bills, it died once um, COVID hit the session. Um, but we're really we're really hopeful about it. Great, great. Yeah, that, that's awesome. That's awesome. Have have any people in the house like said anything, you know, yay or nay, or or are you just kind of are, are we just looking at the Senate reception and saying it's got a pretty good shot? 
We have only moved it in the Senate so far this year and last year. So we'll see where it goes in the House. The House is filled with a lot of former public school educators. So those are folks with uh, personal experience with this process. And it'll be really interesting to see um, how their lived experience affects their uh, their vote. So uh, that wraps up the, the criminal justice part. And we're right at an hour, which is about what I said uh, we, we would try to keep y'all for. Have y'all got time for another, uh, you know, maybe 20, 30 minutes or, or do we need to, do we need to go ahead and wrap it up? I want to, want to be respectful of y'all's time. I could probably do about 10 or 15 more. I don't know about you, Monica. Yeah, I can do 15. Okay. Then, uh, let's, I think that's enough time. Uh, very sorry about that, but, uh, so let's go ahead and, and get the, uh, uh, talk about the voting bills. There are two bills in the House. HB 285 is a ban on curbside voting, and HB 396 is the no excuse absentee voting bill. Um, Monica, I'll, I'll throw it off to you to start with. Uh, what what is the what are these bills seeking to do? What is the ACLU's position? How do they you know how are they looking right now? Well, of course, um, we're advocating for all Alabamas to have equal access to voting, right? Um, with the with the curbside voting, um, that was more of a, a neutral position. But of, of course, with absentee voting widespread, I think COVID is the best example, right? Um, Alabama actually received an A-plus rating on our and how we handled our election um, during this past November's election uh, season. So it... <laughs> Again, it's just very unfortunate because one, we're still in a global pandemic, right? Um, but let's talk about access to voting for all Alabamians, right? You have rural areas where you have people who, one, driver's licenses um, offices have been closed. You have people who don't have adequate transportation on election day. Um, if you think about the major or the metro areas in Alabama, think about how long those lines were in Huntsville on election day. Um, so it's just very unfortunate that of course, um, this was a bill that was overwhelmingly shot down. Um, but think about just during a pandemic, how crucial it is for everybody to have um, access to safe voting. Um, and that's something that, you know, we really hope um, would kind of move, move through and push forward um, with the effort for curbside bans specifically. Um, it just creates further obstacles for people that have disabilities. Um, and think about how how that's expanded while, you know, also being in a rural area as well. So there's no reason to actually spend any time trying to further suppress votes in Alabama because it's already so difficult for so many people um, already. Um, and this is also one of those bills that's just a knee-jerk reaction. Alabama doesn't have an issue um, with our election process. We handle it incredibly well. Um, and it's just something that is honestly just contributing to voter suppression in Alabama. Right, right. Hey, what are your thoughts? I mean, Monica absolutely covered it. The only couple of things I would add are, um, these are like these suppression bills. There are others about limiting the governor's powers, limiting the secretary of state's powers, um, making it illegal to vote in Alabama and another state as if that is a thing that is happening. They're all mm -hmm. messaging bills. Um, as Monica said, they are solutions in search of a problem. Um, but the curbside one is particularly insidious. There's not currently a prohibition against curbside voting in the code. 
but it is a provision that's there to provide local flexibility. Once again, we are a state that loves small government, except for when it's inconvenient. Um, there are lots of polling places. I'm sure y'all have done uh, poll watching, poll monitoring before, nonpartisan poll monitoring. And when you go to some of these really rural counties, you are at some like tiny little one room fire departments that are frankly not ADA accessible. They are all supposed to be ADA accessible, but many of them are not. And curbside voting availability allows people with mobility disabilities, people who are blind or have low vision, or people who for other reasons should not or don't want to go inside a polling place to have the ability to vote on election day. Yes, we have absentee voting, but I have heard so many people talk about the importance to them of voting on election day, particularly in Alabama, where we are so lucky to have living people who were alive during the civil rights movement who fought alongside, you know, legends of the movement for the right to vote, who just want to go and vote on election day but it's hard for them to get inside the building. So why can we not allow them to vote from their car? Um, And it is just continuing to ramp up this like boogeyman narrative about stolen elections. When Secretary Merrill will tell you, we got an A++++ this year about the integrity of our elections. Um, And on notes, who's absentee, this process was really frankly, one of the most disheartening ones because Representative Hall, who was the sponsor of this bill, HB 396, is one of everyone's favorite members of the legislature, both Republican and Democrat. Um, And she worked this bill to get to a compromise um, that folks could feel comfortable with. Um, And unfortunately, um, Secretary Merrill, for reasons that I suppose he could tell us all about if he were here, uh, chose to withdraw his support of it after it um, had a public hearing in committee, uh, which doomed the bill. We really thought we were getting somewhere on it. Um, He withdrew his support and um, now the bill's going nowhere. And it was really disappointing because what we had in this election, as Monica pointed out, was essentially no excuse absentee and it went really well. And it made voting more accessible for more Alabamians. Right, Right. yeah, that that was really disappointing because uh, I heard him talk to one of the folks that uh, really kind of led the charge um, against him. And he, uh, Merrill laid out the case so well for why we did no excuse absentee effectively last year, and it went well, and we should continue to have that. And uh, there was no retort. Like, there was no, you know, the, the, uh, there has been no real argument against no excuse absentee that I have seen. It's a purely, you know, a partisan kind of theater like uh, I'm a Republican, so I don't support this. It, it it's just wild. Um, so uh, we're wrapping up, and the last thing, the last couple things that I wanted to talk to y'all about were there were a couple uh, healthcare related bills. Um, there were two regarding uh, transgender youth, and then there was the Alabama sex ed bill. So I think in in four minutes, I think we can go through all three of those really quick. Uh, and and so the first one was the. Uh, um, there were the uh, HB1 and SB10 sought to uh, ban medical treatment for trans youth. HB391 
uh, sought to ban transgender participation in gender-affirming sports. And uh, HB 385-SB196 updates Alabama's sex ed bill. So I think the two former ones, not so good. The latter, probably good, I'm assuming. I haven't actually looked into it. So let's, let's, talk, about, let's talk about those three. <laughs> Uh, Monica, I'll yeah. you first. I was about to say, I can, I can kick it off. Um, yeah. Unconstitutional, that should get us through the next few uh, minutes here. Um, but of course, like restricting access to health care for transgender people is, is simply unconstitutional. Um, transgen- trans people deserve to have proper medical care. Um, it's best practices for our transgender youth to actually consult with um, people, you know, to, to the proper... Um, medical professionals to be able to get the proper assistance that they need. And it's not the government's business to override that first and foremost, the parents and the medical professionals are totally capable of figuring out the best solutions for those children. Um, but again, uh, HB1 and SB10 simply just seek to criminalize medical professionals who offer evidence-based and gender-affirming treatment to children um, but it also seeks to penalize school personnel um, that choose not to quote unquote out those students to their parents. And of course, those both of that, especially with you know criminalizing school officials for not um, breaking that confidentiality and you know telling pe- t- telling parents um, that could present present a da- very dangerous situation for that particular child. Um, but they should be I able know to... I that consult- was the original version of the bill. I thought that had got amended out. It didn't? No. <laughs> no. Um, okay. it, it has not been amended out. Um, unfortunately, you would think that that would be amended out of there, but it's still, it's, it's still there, alive and kicking. Um, but no, uh, trans, you know, trans students and their parents or trans youth and their parents are completely capable of consulting with medical professionals in order to figure out what's the best treatment uh, for this child based off of base, uh, best practices and not through this hypothetical, you know, <laughs> boogeyman of a situation. Um, that's something that, you know, legislators should really keep their hands off of. But unfortunately, it is still seeing a lot of movement within our lovely uh, legislator here. Yeah. And to your question, Jacob, the amendments that they added, one would exempt out pharmacists, one would partially exempt out mental health care professionals, counselors, and psychiatrists, but it does nothing to address the school personnel question. Um, and certainly does nothing to address um, uh, doctors. Um, and it also leaves in the language about administering medicine. And I was talking to a reporter yesterday and the, doc- and the reporter asked me, you know, well, what if I'm a parent and I'm administering medicine to my child? Could I be charged with a class C felony? And I was like, honestly, none of us have thought about that. That's a great question. Um, but there are now bills like this and like HB 391 in 20 states across the country. Um, HB 391 is the bill that would prevent trans youth from participating in the sport that aligns with their gender identity. um, And that could possibly prevent Alabama from participating in regional and national championships if there are trans youth participating in those events. And it is just an all out war against these children. And frankly, 
it is disgusting to see these members of the legislature use these kids as their battering ram in advance of next year's statewide elections as just another, you know, cudgel for their campaign pitches. Um, we've seen these bills, uh, SPLC works across five states. We see conversations about these bills in each of our five states, um, much like the protest bill, which we've seen in Mississippi, Florida, and Georgia, it started in Florida. We've got it in Alabama now. Uh, we've seen bills like HB1 and SB10 and HB391 in all of our states. Um, I was on a call this afternoon with folks from across the country and just the rapidity with which these attacks on trans kids are being filed is really scary, honestly. And um, is frankly going to lead to a lot of harm. Right. right. So, Katie, let's uh, uh, let's um, wrap it wrap up, it up on a positive note with sex ed. Yep. Real quick. So, in Alabama, sex ed is not compulsory, but when you teach sex ed, you have to tell kids that homo uh, homosexuality is not only um, against the law; it is against the morals of the state. Um, so we have been trying for many years to get that out of the code as well as update some of the code language to do things like change AIDS to HIV, change STD to STI, et cetera, just to sort of update some outdated language. We are almost there. We have been trying for so many years. In uh, last year, this bill was next on the calendar before COVID uh, closed down the session. The year before that, it was next on the calendar before the session uh, ended. We have gotten so close every time. So now the bill has passed the House, it has passed Senate committee. So we are inches away. Um, there were a few amendments added on in the House, but nothing changed things substantively. But what is important about this legislation, because it does seem like small changes, and they are small changes, is that when teachers, when coaches teaching sex ed are allowed to say things like that out loud in the classroom, it creates a de facto environment of discrimination um, and creates an environment where LGBT, LGBTQ youth are um, a punching bag. Um, and so this is just one minor way that we can make that change. Right. Katie, Monica, thank y'all so much for your time. You've been very generous. Yeah. I look forward to talking to y'all again in the future. And uh, y'all have a good night. We're about to bring on Carol from Alabama Arise. Katie, Monica, thanks again so much. Thanks, Jacob. Hey, Carol. Bye. See you later. All hey, right. So like I said, we are going to be talking to uh, Carol from Alabama Arise here in just a moment. Uh, we are, uh, but first, I'm going to go to a, going to go to a break really quickly, and we will be right back.
All right, folks, we are back. This is the Valley Labor Report. I have got on the line with me now Carol Gundelach from uh, Alabama Arise. She is going to be talking to us about Medicaid expansion, the American Rescue Plan impacts on the Alabama state budget, and the lottery. Uh, so, Carol, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on a Wednesday evening. I really appreciate it. We are glad to do it. So, Carol, first, let's talk about Medicaid expansion. That is something that, as long as I've known about Alabama Arise, I've been more or less aware of them since probably 2017, 2018. That has been um, Alabama Arise's bailiwick. Uh, talk to us about Medicaid expansion in general, but also there are some interesting things specifically uh, this session. There, there are indeed. Um, we are as close now as we have ever been to expanding Medicaid. And it's really important to kind of understand how health insurance systems work to understand why this is so important. You know, many of us get our health insurance from our employer. Um, many others of us are covered by some kind of public health insurance like um, Medicare or Medicaid. Um, and um, some of us can buy insurance through the exchanges set up by the Affordable Care Act. But there is one big gap there where people who have too much money to qualify for Medicaid in Alabama, and you have to be pretty desperately poor to qualify for Medicaid in Alabama. Can you talk but to us about those qualifications really quick? Well, yes. Um, First of all, you have to be, if you are a child, um, children are covered um, up until a fairly significant, you know, um, above poverty rate. And then after that, they can uh, be covered by the children's health insurance plan, which covers children at an even higher rate. So generally speaking, we cover almost 100% of children in Alabama, either through the parents insurance, Medicaid or CHIP. People who are disabled and get SSI can receive Medicaid. Um, and people who are in nursing homes receive Medicaid. The people who don't receive Medicaid are people who are the working poor, which of course can be as many as 360,000 people in Alabama don't have any health insurance at all because their incomes are too high to get Medicaid because they're working and their incomes are too low to qualify on to get um, insurance through the Affordable Care Act exchanges. And those are the people that we want to be able to cover under Medicaid expansion. Um, it's the, it's a, the lady who checks you out at the grocery store, the guy who bags your groceries, the, the person who works in the convenience store, the daycare center worker who takes care of your kids. Those are the folks we're trying to help here. And the issue with Medicaid expansion, well, beyond ideology, the, the issue that you hear most from legislators about Medicaid expansion is how are we gonna pay for it? That we have a really sweet deal from the federal government uh, for every dollar we put up uh, in Alabama for Medicaid um, 
under the expansion rules, we'll get nine federal dollars. So it is a deal. The problem is, and legislators will say this over and over again, you got to have the one dollar. And we are estimating that to expand Medicaid in Alabama will cost the state about $160 million in the first year. It's a lot of money. Um, and that has been the barrier all along because the legislature either can't or won't find that money. Now we at Arise would probably say this means they won't find the money because we've had a number of proposals over the year years for where that money can come from. Um, but be that as it may, the American Recovery Plan that was just passed by Congress sweetens that deal even more. And what they do is they really, and this is very complicated and very technical, but they increase what's the match rate, the amount of money we get from the feds for every dollar we put up for the entire Medicaid program, not just for the expansion population. And that means all of a sudden it's going to be incredibly cost-effective for us to expand Medicaid. So it's time to do it and cover, give, provide insurance to those people that need it so desperately and are the people that we call essential workers. Right, yeah, that, that's one of my least favorite things is people calling folks essential workers and then not being willing to do anything for them. I mean, that, that really, uh, you know, it's, it's like, it, it, it's like setting up an applause for a bunch of nurses and then, you know, going on a union busting drive against their organizing effort. But, uh, um, in the American rescue plan, there is some added incentives for states to expand Medicaid. Does it go all the way and actually fully fund Medicaid expansion, or is does it fully fund Medicaid expansion for one year, or what is, you know, wh 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 what are the specifics there? We, well, we are looking at um, numbers now. We know that the legislature is looking at numbers, the governor's office is looking at numbers. Um, because this is a complicated formula, we don't have definite numbers yet. But we think, we think that we are going to be able to expand Medicaid for about three years without any significant increase um, to the general fund budget. And that'll give us at least that long to figure out what we are going to have to do after those three years. Now, we have a plan and we have a proposal that we have had on the table for a long time at Arise that um, Alabama has a very peculiar um, tax break for the wealthiest people in the state. Um, it is a break where people can deduct their federal taxes when calculating their state income taxes. Um, it's, we're one of only a handful of states that does this. And it um, disproportionately benefits the richest people in the state. Last numbers we looked at, if we got rid of that tax break, we'd bring in about 185 million new dollars into the state of Alabama. That would more than fund Medicaid expansion. So what we're hoping is that we can take advantage of this um, a new federal match rate and expand now, and then that'll give us some time to debate how we continue to fund it.
Right, right, right. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that makes a lot of sense. So you said that you feel like there are that, that y'all are a lot closer to this than you have been in the past. Why do you feel that way? We feel that way because when we started this conversation, my goodness, when the Affordable Care Act passed, however many years ago that was, what we were hearing were ideological objections. We were hearing objections about socialized medicine and Obamacare and what happens if the feds yank the money out from under us and um, and we don't do things like that in Alabama because we believe in pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. We're hearing those kind of arguments. We're not hearing those arguments anymore. And we haven't been hearing them for the last couple of years. What we're hearing now is discussions about how the numbers look. How can we pay for this? How can we re maintain this? Um, how can we continue this past the first couple of years? And what we, a couple of years ago, last year, we we're hearing, well, yeah, that's a real, that'd be great, but we don't have the money. Now what we're hearing legislators and the governor's office saying to us is, we wanna take a really close look at this. We're getting our, you know, outside where I get in our experts to run the numbers. We're really considering this. Um, we think that this could happen if the numbers line up right. So we're hearing going all the way from, no, we will never do anything like this to we've just got to figure out the details. That is a lot better. <laughs> and now it can be Katie and call. Oh, no worries, no worries. So. Yeah, that, I mean, that's... That is definitely a lot better. That that's a, that's a lot better situation. Um, are, is there anything else that you wanted to say about the Medicaid expansion? Or I think I, I think that's that's a pretty good summary of the situation there myself. I think that's a situation we're hearing good stuff from both sides of the aisles. We've got some Republicans who are saying the right things. You know, we 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 think we're closing the deal. We hope. That's great. So that that's a good second. You know, the Medicaid expansion, one of the reasons that this is looking so good this session is because of the uh, is because of the um, the incentives from the American Rescue Plan. That's yes. one of the reasons is because it's, it's helping ease the financials. The American Rescue Plan also has a lot of other um, a lot of other implications into the general fund budget, and including there's a big raise for teachers in the in, in the in the budget this year. Uh, Mobile County is giving uh, its teachers like two thousand dollar bonuses or something like that. I mean, it, this is you know. So, what are the implications of the American Rescue Act on the rest of the budget here in Alabama? Yeah, well, it's really interesting. Um, Alabama surprisingly did not get hurt as much during the current recession as many states did. Now, one could say that's because we don't spend enough money on public services in the first place, but we did at least come out with our budgets looking fairly interesting um, or fairly intact. Um, that meant that there are things that we could kind of play with some in the budgets that um, didn't even depend on new federal dollars, like what is going on with the teachers. They are the 
Senate um, Education Trust Fund bill is um, really revamping how we pay teachers, particularly teach teachers in the STEM fields and uh, so that we can compete with the private economy and is providing increased increase wages for all teachers. And we are hoping to get some increases for special ed teachers who desperately need them too. None of that depends on federal dollars, but what we have seen from federal dollars, and this may be what Mobile is going to be doing with some of their money, is we are seeing significant amounts of new federal dollars flowing into the states to both state government, to local governments, um, to directly to schools and to individuals in a number of different um, um, number of different programs. Um, and all of this is intended, of course, to stimulate the economy, to get people back to work. And we hope to do some things to, that Alabama has long needed to do. Um, so for example, the state is going to get, um, and I don't have the dollars right in front of me, but it's going to get a significant amount of money to, um, um, that we can spend for infrastructure. We really want to do something around the water issues and the sewer issues in Lowndes County. And so we're going to be talking to the governor's office about how we can invest that money into taking care of what's really been a public health and humanitarian crisis in the Black Belt. Um, similarly, local uh, units of local government are going to get money they can spend on infrastructure and can spend on education. And then of course, as we all know, individuals are going to be getting um, both stimulus payments and increases to public assistance program like food stamps, SNAP, like the Women, Infants and Children program, uh, like the child tax credit is revolutionary that is included in the, um, in the new stimulus package. For the first time in the United States, we are going to be giving low-income families with children regular help in taking care of those children, um, you know, to the tune of about $3,000 to $3,600 per child. It's, it's, it's a game changer. Certainly, yeah. That, that, I mean, that's, that's all really fantastic. And I think that really underscores the, uh, <clears throat> the importance and the significance of the American Rescue Plan. I think it did a lot of good stuff. Uh, I mean, that, that's some really good stuff. Yeah, 80% of the children in Alabama are going to benefit from this change in the child tax credit. That's huge. Wow, 80%. 80%. Yeah. That is huge. Yeah. <laughs> so um, the last thing that I had you slated to talk about, to, to talk about was the lottery. And that's something that has mm -hmm. been, um, you know, Alabama has been playing you know, political football with the lottery uh, my whole lifetime, you know, ever, <laughs> ever since I've been born and before, and before I've been born. Uh, and this, at the beginning of this session, they really came in, Delmarsh came in, guns a-blazing, he was like, we're going to get this through, come hell or high water, it's going to be great, and it kind of fell apart, 
and now it's uh, it's coming back out of the grave, and then and you know there's folks that are trying to re revive it. Uh, talk to us about that. And you, you said that th uh, before um, before you came on, you said that uh, this would be a good good way to talk about some of the sausage. So talk to us about the lottery, and talk to us about the sausage. Yeah, you you know there's an old saying that um, people who like law or um, sausage should never watch either being made. And um, this is definitely the, the, the sausage of the law. Uh, you're right, uh, Senator Dale Marsh, who is one of the most powerful people in the Alabama Senate, brought a lottery bill uh, that everybody thought was probably going to pass that had been kind of agreed upon by, by at least the Senate Republicans. And, um, the bill died uh, on a procedural motion um, on the floor of the Senate. Um, to everyone's surprise, including I think, I think Senator Marsh's surprise. Um, wh what we have seen over the years, and I've watched them not pass a lottery for probably as long as you've been alive too, um, is it's not, it's not a simple issue. First of all, it's a constitutional amendment, which means it has to get a supermajority um, in order to be put in the, uh, for a vote of the people. So that's a first barrier. Second barrier is if you include gaming in the bill, as Senator Marsh did, not just the lottery, but gaming, um, then you get into all kinds of complicated, contentious local issues. Um, um, one of the questions is who gets to set up a gaming operation? Um, I live um, about six miles from, um, um, from the casino in Shorter, Alabama, and everybody around me wants to make sure that they can do gaming. The senators that represent um, Green County want to make sure Green Track can have uh, gaming. The senators who represent Dothan want to make sure that Dothan can have gaming. And so there's a lot of local pressure to bring in their local dog tracks or casinos, you know, in Birmingham Mobile, Dothan, Shorter, um, Green County, and so on. Um, and then there's a question about what is our relationship with the Porch Creek um, um, tribe, Indian tribe, and who does, of course, have gaming uh, under federal law. Um, and so there are all these moving parts, and every time there has been a bill that included gaming, it has crashed and burned not over ideology and not over the lottery per se, but over the gaming elements. And that's what happened with Senator Marsh's bill. So um, after that, he came back in with his two different uh, gambling bills, one of which was gaming, one of which was what they call a clean lottery, the lottery only, as did Senator Gudger, as did Senator McClendon. And so right now we have three lottery bills and one gaming bill, and then, you know, some associated legislation that are all kind of moving in the Senate. And we will see what happens with those. Okay. Now I should say Alabama Rice doesn't have a position 
on the lottery or on gaming. Um, it's a divisive issue among our membership. And, but we do have opinions about if we're going to do it, what's, what, what do we need to make sure is in there? And one is protection for low-income people who disproportionately spend a disproportionate amount of their income on gambling. And the other is what do we do the with the revenues? Where should the money go if we're going to raise money? And um, that's what we're watching real closely right now. Right. Yeah, the lottery is definitely a really, <clears throat> you know, it's a really, uh, it, it's more contentious, I think, than, than some people, or... Or there are more reasons for it to be contentious than some people are willing to say from from a good faith um, from a good faith faith perspective. I think uh, you know my civil liberties side says um, people should be able to do what they want. You know that I who who the hell am I to say to people to to you know paternalistically tell people what they can and can't do with their money. Uh, but also, you know, we can look at the data, and, and like you said, poor folks are much, much more likely to use the lottery and to use it to a detrimental amount. I mean, there are—it is really—it it, it, it has had some devastating effects on communities uh, across this country where the lottery has been implemented. And so, uh, you know, there, you know, uh, like I, I've got—I've got a real tough time wrestling with that in my head, because I, I, I certainly, I'm very, very much uh, in favor of allowing people to do what they will with what they have, but, you know, I don't know, some of the effects are, uh, that, that you can just see are really bad, but also there are good effects too, like Tennessee sends people to, uh, Tennessee sends people to community college for free because of their lottery, and so, you know, it's like, there, there's a lot of things to wrestle with, I think. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Um, I think one of the things we have to think about when we design a lottery is that there are business interests that get real rich off of lotteries, that um, everyone thinks of the state as having a lottery. Well, in point of fact, the state creates a gambling commission and that which then contracts with a private for-profit entity to administer the, the lottery in the state. And so one of the questions for the state is how much are we spending? How much we are we allowing this company that we're contracting with to, to retain? Um, and how aggressively are they going to be pushing this product at people who can't afford or shouldn't you know, be able to afford to purchase a product? Um, you see in a lot of cities something very similar to what we see with payday lenders, which is that uh, outlets that sell lottery tickets are disproportionately physically in low-income communities um, where they um, can basically do another form of predatory merchandising. And so it's a, a lot of the discussion is how do we do this in a way that does not exploit people who are already on the margins? Um, and that's, that's really important consideration for people. Once, if this passes a vote of the public, then the real work becomes how do we structure it in a way that 
does the most good and the least harm. Uh, and that's kind of where we are now. And then, of course, there's the revenue. What do we do with the revenue? And the three bills that are moving all have different kind of proposals for what to do with the revenue. We're real interested in making sure that that money gets into the general fund um, where we can spend it on health care and, um, you know, do either either Medicaid or some other form of health care that's going to benefit um, communities and low-income people in the state. Carol, thank you very much for talking to me. I appreciate, uh, appreciate your time. You're very welcome. Thank you. All right. Uh, so, folks, we have been talking to Carol Grundlet from Alabama Arise, and uh, this is... This is the end of the this is the end of the stream. So I have um, you know just just a couple of announcements. This has been this has been I think probably our longest midweek stream, and um, you know I know that that some of it may have been I don't know that I could if if it wasn't my stream I don't know if I could I if I could sit through an hour and a half or two hours going through bill by bill by bill by bill that's happening in the Alabama legislature. And, uh, you know, our YouTube analytics bear that out. In fact, there are not very many people listening right now. But what I want to do with this stream is I'm going to be cutting each bill. I'm going to be cutting up the stream into, into small sections and releasing them uh, in standalone videos for each bill that we talked about. And I think that that's going to be, I hope that that's going to be helpful. We'll see. Uh, I'm going to uh, tag this little section on to the end of each of the videos. And so <clears throat> in the comments of this video or on any others, that, uh, uh, any others that I create subsequently, let me know how you feel about, about this kind of stuff, because generally, uh, legislation, political kind of stuff, this isn't what we cover. Uh, we, we usually talk about unions and, uh, you know, issues tangential to that. We're a union talk radio show, but, you know, uh, there, there's, there's certainly some value in having a passing familiarity with legislation in the, uh, that's going through Montgomery. So let me know what you think, and uh, if you appreciate our work doing this kind of stuff, or uh, the other kind of stuff, the best way to support us is to become a patron on, at uh, patreon.com slash thevalleylaborreport. Um, we pay to be on the air on Saturday mornings on WVNN. Uh, they've got some paid programming, and so uh, you can imagine that there are not very many businesses lining up to advertise on Union Talk Radio, right? That's <laughs> that's that's not something that they're they're going out to do. Uh, so the folks that support us on Patreon really help us out. Uh, we do have some other unions, progressive nonprofits, and union side law firms that have also been really helping us out. But uh, the listener support is really helpful. Uh, and if you want to get something tangible for your money, we've got these really cool hats. They are union made. Uh, you can see the union bug right there on your screen. Uh, I really like it. It is, it's probably my favorite hat that I've got right now. It fits really well, as you can see, and uh, it is $35. You can buy it on our website at thevalleylaborreport.org. Uh, and, uh, you know, make sure you're following us on social media. We're on Twitter, at Labor Reporters, Facebook, at uh, The Valley Labor Report. And, uh, yeah, that's going to be it. I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up. Thank you for listening, the few of you that are still here. And, um, 